Chapter 15 of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Bruin. The Excelsior Movement. The fun of most of the criticism of George Jean Nathan's lies in the fact that he has been an irreconcilable in the theater. Rules and theories have been disclaimed by him. Each play has been a problem to be considered separately, without relation to anything else except, of course, the current dramatic activities in Vienna, Budapest, and Moscow. Most of his themes have been variations of the two important aspects of all criticism. I like and I don't like. Masking his thrust under a screen of indifference, he has generally afforded stirring comment by the sudden revelation of the fact that his enthusiasms and his hates are lively and personal. Being among the unclassified, the element of surprise has entered largely into his expression of opinion. But of late it is evident that Mr. Nathan has grown a little lonely in functioning as a guerrilla in the field of dramatic reviewing. He is envious of the cults, and his scorn of Clayton Hamilton, George Pierce Baker, and William Archer seems to have been nothing more than what the Freudians call a defensive mechanism. He too would ally himself with a school, to be called the George Jean Nathan School of Criticism. His latest volume of collected essays, entitled The Critic and the Drama, is designed as a prospectus for pupils. It undertakes to codify and describe, in part, the theater of today, and to analyze and explain much more fully George Jean Nathan. He insists on our knowing how the trick is done. To us, there is something disturbing in all this. We have always been among those who did not care to go behind the scenes at the playhouse for fear that we might be forced to learn how thunder is contrived and the manner of making lightning. Still more, we have feared that somebody would impel us into a corner and point out the real David Belasco. We much prefer our own romantic impression gathered wholly from his curtain speeches at first nights. It is painful, then, to have the new book insist upon our meeting the real Mr. Nathan. It was not our desire ever to know how his mind worked. We much preferred to believe that the charming little pieces in the smart set had no father and no mother except spontaneous combustion. The this antic author, burdened with theories, is almost as disillusioning as to hear of Pegasus winning the 2.20 trot or one of the muses contracting to give a culture course at the Women's Study Club of New Rochelle. And the worst of it is that the theories of Mr. Nathan, when exposed in detail, seem to be much like those of other men. Even those who have never had the privilege of attending a performance of Mickelfluden's Arbeit at Das Hochhaus in Prague early in the spring of 1905 have much the same philosophy of the critic 
and the playhouse as Mr. Nathan. Thus we find him explaining that Shakespeare was the greatest dramatist who ever lived, because he alone of all dramatists most accurately sensed the mongrel nature of his art. Mr. Nathan also insists sternly that criticism must be personal, and in discussing the relation between the printed and the acted drama, he ingenuously makes a comparison with music. If drama is not meant for actors, he cries, may we not also argue that music is not meant for instruments? We see no reason on earth why Mr. Nathan should not argue in this manner, since so many hundreds in the past have raised the same point. It is also interesting to learn that Mr. Nathan thinks that drama can never approximate nature. It holds the mirror not up to nature, but to the spectator's individual nature. He has also discovered that great drama, like great men and women, is always just a little sad. The Critic and the Drama is probably the most profound book which Mr. Nathan has ever published, and it is by far the dullest. His pages are alive with echoes, even at such times as they are not directly evoked and called upon by name. One of the difficulties of profundity is overcrowding. A man may remain pretty much to himself as long as he chooses to keep his touch light and avoid research. Taking a suggestion from Mr. Nathan, it may be said that all great masses of men are a little serious. In the plains and the rolling country, there is room for an individual to skip and frolic, but all the peaks are preempted. It may not be generally known that the young man who carried the banner with a strange device was lucky to die when he did. Had he eventually reached the summit which he sought, he would have discovered to his great dismay that he merely constituted the twenty-ninth division in the annual outing of the Excelsior Marching and Chowder Club. Criticism gives the lie to an ancient adage. In this field of endeavor, the higher the fewer may be recognized as an exquisite piece of irony. End of chapter 15 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas